This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Gina Ray Laserva an award-winning writer, geographer, and environmental anthropologist originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Really, feasting wild, the feasting wild mentality is about rediscovering that wild nature within ourselves. And it's up to us to imagine how the world begins again. Gina holds degrees from Yale University, the University of Cambridge, and Vassar College. An avid adventurer, Gina has researched tsunamis in Indonesia, crossed the Pacific Ocean on sailboat, and traced the wild meat trade from the forest of the Congo Basin to the streets of Paris. Her first book is Feasting Wild, In Search of the Last Untamed Food. Well, Gina, thank you so much for joining us today. I like I was mentioning earlier, so looking forward to this conversation because I feel like you have such a strong pulse on what's happening with wild foods and the way that you understand the complexity and nuances of eating these incredible creatures is something that I really resonate with. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I was super excited to get the invitation. So, Oh, good. Yay. So yeah, to begin our conversation, or to pick up on our conversation, I wanted to be in recognition of the ways in which exploring and indulging in wild foods is an experience in our web of relations and the wonder of place. You write, quote, a species cannot exist in isolation. The boundaries between one and another are illusory. And so it is not enough to name each animal. We must describe the tapestry in which each is woven, end quote. So can you share with us how you think about wild foods as a boundary-breaking experience? Sure. So everything that we eat, anytime we eat, is tied into this much larger ecological web. Even when we eat domesticated foods, they come from the earth, they have part of the water cycle and the nutrient cycle, whether it's grown industrially or hydroponically. But it's so easy to forget that sort of in your everyday sitting down to dinner. But with wild food, that kind of larger web of relations is so much more apparent. And when you're out in the forest foraging or hunting, you can really see how this enormous complex system from the microbes in the soil up into the roots of the trees, the nutrient cycle, the water cycle, the insects and birds, I mean, really an entire ecosystem is functioning as a whole. So, you know, sometimes they say eating wild food is like eating time because all of these forces had to come together to create this one organism that you're going to eat. And I just love the way that wild foods kind of tie us into the past and the complexity out of which we evolved too. So it's, you know, when you eat something like a chanterelle, it's millions of years of evolution went into the creation of that mushroom, both for you and the mushroom and the forest in which it grows. So for me, that is one of the most interesting ways that eating wild kind of breaks those boundaries, those experiences. I've been uh, getting really worked up about ramps lately, the wild onion that are really popular, primarily on the East Coast, because these can take up to 10 years to mature from a seed. 
into a plant that's edible. And so when people harvest them incorrectly all the time, and you're basically stopping that, when you pull it up from the roots, you're killing that potential. So the next time you eat something like a ramp, just think that it took 10 years to get to your plate. Things like that for me with wild foods really create this boundary baking experience. Mm-hmm. I've held conversations with beloved seed keepers on the attempted obliteration of seed diversity, which of course is tied to the disappearance of wild foods from our diet. And it's baffling to think that at one point, humanity collectively relied upon tens of thousands of plant species for both sustenance and medicine. And now for much of the world, our diet revolves around staples like corn, wheat, and rice. So I'm wondering, how did we allow wild foods to disappear, first gradually and then suddenly from our palate? And what are the ramifications, both nutritionally and soulfully, of domesticating our diet? Yeah, I mean, what you point to is this really kind of insane homogenization and standardization of what we eat. You know, we go to the grocery store and there's 100 different kinds of cereal to buy, but really it's basically all the same ingredients. So there's a lot of reasons that this happened. You know, if we start with the rise of agriculture, which we don't entirely understand why it arose 10,000 years ago, but it is was a set of cultural relationships between us and animals and plants. And whether that was due to a climactic shift or sort of accidental, that kind of was the beginning of reducing our reliance on as many different plants as we could because not all plants could be domesticated. Um, And then more recently, the loss of wild foods really followed the path of colonialism. So as colonialism swept around the world, we saw again and again places that had reliance on local wild foods that was interrupted by the colonial machine and the various foods that were imported through that process and the land land use changes. So for instance, in 19th, 19th century America, people ate hundreds of kinds of different wild birds. But the destruction of habitat that happened was so immense that it really reduced the populations of these birds to the point where we could no longer eat them. So, for instance, between 1850 and 1910, almost 10% of all the land in the United States was clear-cut. So it's a huge amount of forest that was destroyed in such a short amount of time, really ruining a lot of bird habitat. Similarly, in California, the Central Valley had been a vast riparian ecosystem supporting a huge number of wild birds. And then by the 1890s, that was primarily all transformed into agricultural fields. And then the same thing happened on the, on the prairie grasslands, which were shrinking to agriculture. So some of, the, some of the reason why these are no longer in our diets have to do with land use changes, the pace of resource extraction, things becoming automated and mechanized, populations booming. So really over the centuries, what we've traded is this sort of local wild diversity for a global industrial agricultural diversity. And then what we're finding is that nature and cultures are increasingly homogenous. And I think in terms of what we've lost during this process, you know, most of us live in a sort of terribly disconnected place from nature, from the seasons, from the other creatures with with whom we share the planet. And yet, you know, we are wild nature. And so studies have shown that exposure to being out on the land can lower cancer rates, reduce stress, increase our happiness, lower ADHD and anxiety. So scientists call this biophilia, which is, you know, we feel our best when we're engaging with this primal source. And even if we think of ourselves as so modern and evolved, really in the deepest and oldest parts of our brain, we kind of remain hunter gatherers. So our brains are kind of the reward system is set up on having to go out and look for food every day. And we feel our best when we're kind of finding that signal in the noise of stimulus and when we habit these flow states that occur during hunting and gathering. And so that's sort of on the you know, mental level, emotional level. But in terms of our own physiology, you know, our stomachs contain a ridiculous number of neurons. It's almost like a second brain. So if you think about what we're feeding ourselves, it makes sense that we might feel the healthiest when we're eating an ever-changing variety of wild plants and animals. On a purely taste level, we might crave sweet or fatty because these were limiting factors in our diets for a lot of human history, but really we love complex flavors because they signify micronutrients, bitterness of some of our most beloved stimulants and medicines have that bitter quality. So all of that is missing from our our modern diets. And a lot of the food that we eat is really inbred. It's less flavorful and it's less nutritious than the wild counterparts. So essential nutrients like vitamins A and C, 
thiamine, riboflavin, iron, other trace minerals, those are all found in higher amounts in wild foods. And scientists have also found that eating a diversity of wild foods is associated with higher rates of gut flora diversity. So that also correlates to better measures of health and happiness. So as you can see, sort of our psyches, our palates, and our physiques were really not made for the uniform industrialized food that we all eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been working on my palate to really crave the bitters because I will absolutely say that I love fat and sugar. And so I'm working with that because it's interesting how our our taste buds can be trained either towards these this industrial mechanized food system or towards something that is obviously far healthier and more in our in our history as something that allowed us to evolve. So yeah, it's it's interesting and yeah, I mean you know, it makes total sense that during these quarantine moments, everyone is really like into baking cakes and eating bread and pasta and binging on sugar and salty things. Because all of that is sort of evolutionary built into us to crave these types of things as a limiting factor in our diets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And well, in Feasting Wild, you point out that amidst a global dissolution of wild foods, there is somewhat of a select resurgence, not out of necessity, but luxury. And you write, quote, weeds have become a delicacy only in the context of wealth, a luxury because access is limited. There is a meal for those most benefiting from the economic and social structures of modern day capitalism. It's self-responsible for the vast destruction of species and ecosystems. Having consumed everything else civilization has to offer, we fetishize the wild because in many ways it no longer exists, end quote. And yeah, I think about those who travel far beyond their own bioregions just to experiences the vestiges of the self-willed, but it becomes especially paradoxical when we think about eating wild foods. So I'm curious in the context of sustenance, when and how does wilderness become a luxury and what are the limitations of this luxury in that it doesn't require one to forage to learn about the original tenders of such wild foods or to meet those who depend on wild foods, not for status, but because of birthright? Yeah, so I think this this ties back into what we're talking about in terms of craving sort of these other kinds of flavors that aren't part of what we get to eat every day, these sort of rare wild flavors that you know, for most of human history, were just very common. And now they're, they've become something that most people will never get to try. And so it's increasingly becoming partially in the foodie world as this thing of sort of what kind of rare wild animal can you eat next or, or mushroom or, or plant. And what I found super fascinating during my research was that this idea of the wilderness is sort of a luxury or a spiritual retreat or something to take away the dullness of domesticated life, that that's not actually a very new idea, but has been with us for a really long time. So at the height of the Roman Empire, you know, you had these elaborate feasts, and there was all these writers craving simpler times, you know, writing about how the pastoral meal that you would eat after a day in the field was, was far more delicious than any sort of elaborate banquet that they attended. And then in the 19th century in America, you had New York industrialists going up to the Adirondacks where they would stay in sort of intentionally primitive conditions and, you know, eat wild duck for dinner. And the bar was just a barrel of whiskey in the corner. So, you know, and then we see it again today, this sort of desire for simplicity in many ways, but you have to have money and time to sort of live that simple life. Right. And that's part of the irony that I really explore in this book. You know, something like van life is incredibly expensive and it perhaps used to be a cheap, easy way to exist outside of that capitalist system. And now even that has become a commodity. So it's very similar for wild food and for our relationship to wilderness. You know, part of what I was interested in when researching this book and writing this book was how wild foods could be sort of a metaphor for our relationship, our larger relationship to wild nature, particularly at this moment when, you know, there's sort of a question of does wild nature even exist anymore? Has the humans impacted every last square inch of it? And so what does a wild food even mean? So I think looking out throughout history and in this present moment, there's sort of this idea that when you no longer have to rely on the wilderness or on wild foods, then it becomes this other sort of relationship to wild nature. So think of it sort of as like a touristic view or appetite versus a subsistence one. 
And then it opens up really interesting questions into ideas of gentrification or cultural appropriation. So, you know, how do we look back at these food traditions that exist for all of us? You know, we just might have to go back generations in order to find these sort of traditions that relate to wild food. So I talk a lot in the book about my great grandmother and I imagine what her life in the Polish forest was like, but this is a lost history because she was Jewish. She fled her homeland. We don't really know very much about her or how she used wild food, but in many ways that mystery sort of still lives within myself. And I think all of us have that birthright. So, you know, I talk a lot about nostalgia in the book and I find it to be a really fascinating evolutionary adaptation, you know, that we as a species have the capacity to feel a longing for something that no longer exists and something that we might not have even enjoyed at the time, but looking back, we sort of wish for it, you know, so we have these deep feelings of wanting to forage when maybe having to survive off the forest really sucked and was really difficult, but you know, it's something that I think is really interesting that this kind of commodification of the wild or of wild food is happening at this moment when, you know, the earth has sort of never been threatened in the way that it is now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the nuances and challenges between subsistence and luxury. And yeah, there's so much there. And thinking about the fetitization of foraged foods, I often think about the wild mushroom trade. And you write, quote, many wild mushrooms have high concentrations of heavy metals such as mercury, yet the desire to eat them has only grown in recent years. Strangers move through the woods, ripping up edible and inedible species indiscriminately, extracting their flesh for a global market. In some areas of the world, the commercial harvesting of wild mushrooms has gotten so intense that the practice threatens the health of the forest, end quote. And the global market for mushrooms was last estimated to be worth over $40 billion a year. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how this practice is threatening the health of our forests and how the commodification of wild foods becomes incredibly messy when we want to replicate an experience without any regard for the ecological context and purpose of wild foods. Or perhaps just the very irony of trying to recreate what is foraged on a mass scale. Right. I mean, I think this part is so interesting, this part of kind of the desire for wild food, because part of what people are desiring are, is this thing that we can't make ourselves, right? We cannot grow a mushroom. We have to rely on this larger ecosystem to do it. But in a capitalist economy, more and more aspects of life become mediated by the market. And so, you know, increasing portions of the natural world are becoming kind of engulfed in that economy, despite the fact that they are reproduced and maintained by forces outside of that economic system. So ecological forces that have nothing to do with the economy. And, you know, our very conception of what a wild environment is is sort of embodied in the power structures and that work within these forms of economics. So what do I mean by that? There's sort of this like inherent contradiction because in many ways, a desire for these wild foods or wild mushrooms might mean that we value them highly and that might mean that we protect the landscapes where they come from, right? Which would be a great thing if we just thought wild mushrooms are the best and we work to, you know, protect those forests. But a high price also drives extraction and demand. And so then you have increasingly black market forces, criminal syndicates happening with a lot of the wild foods that I looked at across the board from seafood to wild meat to mushrooms. There's huge elements of these sort of outside of the kind of regular market are these these black market forces that are often quite violent. So one of the issues with wild foods is that they don't generally come in the same high levels of abundance that domesticated foods do. It's part of their rarity that, you know, ecosystems tend to have a lot of biological diversity and redundancy and less of any one species, you know, versus an industrial growth of something. So, you know, what commoditization of these of these wild foods does is it separates the consumer from the production. You know, capitalism is really good at taking things created in a far off place, standardizing them and then selling them to consumers in another far off place. And there's sort of this idea of a frictionless trade, but you know, what's valuable about wild food is it's irregularity, it's seasonality, it's weirdness, it's cyclical nature. In some years there might be a bunch of mushrooms and then the next year, all those nutrients are sent up into the tree networks 
to create nuts and, and fruits. So these mast years, they borrow um, a huge amount of nutrients from the underground mycorrhizal networks. So for instance, in Borneo, which is one of the places that I go in this book, um, the cycle is really amazing. We don't totally understand it, but at irregular intervals between two and 10 years, all these tree species conduct a synchronized flowering event. And so the forest becomes gregarious with fruit and nuts. And then other years, nothing happens. And so part of the issue and the contradiction around commodifying wild foods is that there's no place for these sort of irregular natural wild cycles to occur to these sort of chance fluctuations that really give value to, to the wildness of these foods. in my early days was a commercial mushroom forager for a bit and I went into it with good intentions really not understanding the commercialized industrial global market for them and it was heartbreaking to see the forest being ripped up completely stripped of every mushroom and vans of people just going out into national forest taking everything they could and it wasn't reciprocal. But of course, it's also very complicated with economic needs of people too. And so, yeah, there's so much there. But I really am grateful for you speaking to that because especially with fungi, it's become so fetishized on social media and everybody wants a piece of it. And so I've actually really stopped my foraging relationship with mushrooms for the most part. And I think it's important for us who really do care about the earth to understand what kind of impact we can have, because we may only pick a couple, but if everybody picks a couple, there's none left. And what does that mean for the forest? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, one of the rules of foraging is only pick 10%, leave 90% behind for nature. But as you're saying, it so much depends on how many other people are foraging in that area. And I think part of the problem with global commodities, making wild foods global commodities, is that sense that you no longer know what's happening on that local landscape. You don't get to go back every year and see how the mushrooms are doing this year. What is, you know, is it is it a year that you really shouldn't take mushrooms because they need to regenerate? So that capitalist system is mediating what should be a much more intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we delve further, I'd like to turn our conversation towards your experience with and the politics of the wild meat trade in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is a topic that has been discussed on and off by varying actors for quite some time without any clear resolution. And perhaps that's because it is an issue that epitomizes so many of the varying facets of wild food, ancestral and cultural practices, environmental conversation, lucrative illegal trading networks, and the desires and demands of global markets. So for listeners who are unfamiliar, how did wild game turn into such an elusive trade? Yeah, so people in the forests of the Congo Basin, which is a massive, massive ecosystem in the center of Africa, people have been eating wild meat there for millennia. You know, there weren't a ton of domesticated animals or domesticated animals at all. And so wild meat was really the source of protein for people. And then uh, as so often goes, we had a period of colonialism and people were forced out of their sort of semi-nomadic forest gathering, hunting, agricultural lives and forced to grow commodity crops for the Belgians 
they were no longer allowed to go hunting in the forests and meat became increasingly sort of like a symbol of power and and wealth and status. And so after colonialism, you increasingly had this desire for wild meat by, you know, high-powered people which started to drive the trade. You know, another issue is just population. Issues of population are complicated and important to to kind of get at the nuances of, but really there's just more people hunting in the Congo Basin now than ever before. Democratic Republic of Congo also experienced a, a number of civil wars, and that allowed automatic weapons like AK-47s, AK-15s into the forest, and that really increased the pace of extraction of wild meat because in the past, when people may have been hunting with a shotgun, with a machine gun, you can take down an entire troop of monkeys, you know, in, in five minutes. The other thing that happened there, which has happened all over the world, is increasing urbanization. And so suddenly you have a market for forest products in an urban setting. And again, as we're talking about with the mushrooms, that kind of spatial distance actually increases the value of the product in the cities and has led to more and more people who used to just subsist on wild meat in the forest have started selling it as a way to get cash. And so now you have these huge trade networks of people that come from the city and they'll bring things like bullets or soap or various sort of industrialized products and they'll trade them for wild meat up in the forest communities. So this conservationists have been talking about the bushmeat trade for 50 years. It's kind of seemed like an intractable problem. As you mentioned, it's really tied up with the small arms trade with sort of illegal elements. And it's important to also mention that eating wild meat is not necessarily illegal, illegal in the Congo. Just like in the US, they have hunting seasons, they have open and closed seasons when you're allowed to hunt, you need to have a permit to own a gun. So a lot of the illegality actually comes from sort of these smaller scale things where someone might be hunting with a gun that they don't have a permit for or hunting out of season, or hunting in a national park instead of a sort of other corridor forest, which is available for hunting. But increasingly wild meat can can be a status symbol. But for a lot of Congolese, it's also part of just culturally what what kind of food you would eat. So it's very much a, a celebratory food. People eat it for weddings and holidays. You know, I like to say it would be kind of like if the U.S. outlawed turkey on Thanksgiving, you know, people would literally be up in arms. So to tell a Congolese person that they shouldn't eat this this meat when it's so much a part of their past and their ancestors and their culture is really, really complicated. And then for another sector of Congolese society, and this is shrinking because as game meat becomes more of a luxury, as I said, people are more willing to sell it rather than eat it. But for a lot of people, it's still a means of survival. So they live in areas where they don't have access to domesticated meat. And so this is what they're subsisting on. They hunt in order to live. And then in other areas where there's a lot of illegal mining happening in the forest, these sort of small scale mining communities pop up and they often don't have access to imported foods. And so game meat becomes a primary source of protein there as well. So, you know, when we're trying to figure out how best to pass conservation measures, you know, you have to weigh all of these things because you know, there's no doubt that the bushmeat trade is decimating the forests. Conservationists call it the empty forest syndrome. And, you know, so many animals have been wiped out that there's concern that the trees that rely on these animals to distribute their seeds, these trees are not reproducing anymore. And so the whole ecology of the forest is changing with the loss of these animals. But, you know, it's incredibly complicated to try and figure out how to fix this problem. There is some talk about farming wild meats, particularly smaller animals that are easier to cultivate, like cane rats, porcupines, and antelopes. We do that in the U.S. with certain kinds of wild animals and birds. But as we've seen in China, there can be major problems with that as well in terms of the health of the animals and the potential for these other zoonoses to arise, kind of like coronavirus. So it's it's a yeah. super challenging problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear that. And... It reminds me a lot of what's happening in Alaska with salmon and subsistence versus mm. commercialization versus sports fishing and who gets to eat it and who should be eating it, if anyone. It's really complicated. And there was another part in your book that was talking about 
the introduction of chicken into the Congo. And I would love if you could speak a little bit about that, just how they're trying to kind of sell this idea of the Western diet as something to strive for and how bringing chicken in could really potentially be extremely harmful, perhaps. So yeah, if you could speak to that too, I thought that was a really interesting part in your book. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to what you're saying about who gets to eat these foods and who gets to decide, right? So in DRC, a lot of these attempts at getting people to stop eating bushmeat, you know, for a long time, the trade was really focused on the hunting of the of the animals. So trying to get people to stop hunting, trying to give, you know, alternative livelihoods to people who were hunters, working on the networks. And now people are starting to realize that really the demand for the meat, for the wild meat is part of what's, is a huge part of what's driving this trade. And so how do we start to change that demand? So one conservation organization that I, that I interviewed, they're trying to start a massive chicken farming operation in order to get more and more sort of fresh and frozen chicken to the markets in Kinshasa in the hopes that people will prefer or start eating chicken over eating wild meat. And, you know, there's various issues with this. So for instance, the chicken feed that they need requires industrial, you know, to to grow 80,000 chickens a year, you need a lot of feed. And where does that feed come from? Well, in this case, the feed has to come from Brazil because there isn't that source of feed currently happening in Congo or in the neighboring areas, neighboring countries. Um, So you have to feed them. Another issue in DRC is that there's often rolling blackouts. And so the cold chain or sort of this the cold chain is, is like all the refrigerated trucks and refrigeration that is required to have meat like this, that isn't super reliable. And so people get sick eating chicken. And so there's sort of an association with it not being as healthy, whereas game meat is slow roasted over many days and that's its preservation technique. And so people actually consider game meat to be much healthier because it doesn't have the same association with illness that domesticated meats might have. And So, and then another thing is that people eat game meat to vary their diets. So as we were talking about earlier, sort of, even though we might crave fat and sugar, we also crave sort of diversity in our flavor palettes. We want to eat a different thing for dinner every night. And so for Congolese people who eat game, and again, not all Congolese people do, it's primarily associated with people who had uh, ancestors that lived in the forests. But, you know, wild animals taste very different. So an antelope is going to taste different than a bush pig. And so people eat wild game to vary their diets in that way. And, and the idea that you could, you know, would eat chicken every night is kind of preposterous. So these Western conservation organizations are hoping that they can kind of change hearts and minds and say, look, you can cook chicken in lots of different ways. And, you know, I think they're really targeting sort of the second generation urban dweller. So whereas someone who maybe moved to the city as an adult or still had some connection to their uh, ancestral villages would still prefer game meat, maybe that next generation actually doesn't prefer it and is totally happy to, happy to eat a Western diet of chicken. There's also some really interesting sort of gender dynamics where white meat isn't really seen as meat to some Congolese men. So the sort of red meat, that quality of game meat is what gives a man his sort of vitality, much in the way that you might say like chicken is different than like eating that, that perfect hamburger or something. You know, we have some of those similar kind of ideas about meat and masculinity in this country as well. Hmm. Wow, it's so complex. We've gotten ourselves in such a a pickle here. Um, it's yeah, and I know, and it was millions of years in the making, right? <laughs> oh no, yeah. Well, in your work, you beautifully chronicle the relationship between wild foods and their environments, which we talked about a bit already. But now I'm particularly thinking about the history of green turtles during the 1700s and 1800s and how after their population was disseminated through the popularity of green turtle soup, epiphytic algae grew rampantly, which in turn led to suppressed seagrass productivity, widespread mortality of the long-spined sea urchin, coral reef die-off, and beach erosion. And so with this understanding as an entrance point, I wonder what the relationship is between reviving wild foods and fostering comprehensive environmental conservation. How might our reverence for wild foods replace long-forgotten cultural beliefs that once aided in the conservation and protection of ecology for many? 
Yeah, this is such a good question. And again, we could probably spend hours talking about this one as well. But when Columbus came to the quote unquote new world, there were tens of millions of sea turtles in the ocean. I mean, there were so many that sailors used to think that they were rocks in the sea, you know, and, and there were stories of, of sailors using the sound of these turtles swimming to navigate because there were so many of them in the oceans. So, you know, the, the level of wild food abundance in the past is like, is really, really hard to fathom sometimes um, in our present ecological state to think about how quickly we decimated these creatures as well. Again, this is a pattern that we see over and over. The green turtle was consumed as subsistence by early colonists. It was fed to enslaved people. And then as it becomes became rarer, it became a luxury in England where sort of like if you were going to have a, a, a banquet, you had to serve green turtle soup. And as you mentioned, as the turtles were decimated, they, they were a keystone species in the ecosystem and they helped to regulate these underwater seagrass beds they help to fertilize coral and kind of uh, maintain nutrients on beaches. So as they're decimated, the whole ecology of the ocean changed. But, you know, this, this relationship between conservation and wild food has a really long history. So in the Middle Ages, kings passed some of the earliest conservation laws in order to protect the forests where they hunted. As a result, we still have some of these really ancient forests today because that sort of conservation law got passed down through the centuries. And it was really just to protect this sort of kingly appetite for wild meat. More recently, we have something like the duck stamp tax in the US, which allows for both hunting of, of waterfowl and the conservation of wetlands. You know, so there's this kind of uncomfortable, but also really interesting relationship between hunters, foragers, and conservation you know, sort of the paradox of consuming something to save it, right? And I worry that as we've lost the sort of direct reason of sustenance to care for our lands, that it becomes much more, much easier to just pave over something and turn it into a shopping mall. You know, we no longer see that place as something that we can rely on for food or for survival or for delicious flavors. And it's, it's easy to forget that past abundance that could be revived in these places. Our obsession with wild foods both as a fetish and as a need has, has driven environmental conservation. And so how do we revive sort of both those diets and that link to conservation while recognizing that we exist in uh, the system that, you know, if something becomes a commodity, does that still allow us to create that, that revitalization in these ecosystems? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When things become commodity, it just seems like such a slippery slope downwards and it's really challenging to keep integrity while commodifying something and to keep on this topic it's as so often happens with recorded history women's contributions and whether that's botany agriculture and foraging have been erased alongside their knowledge keeping counterparts which is particularly ironic considering that historically women have been primary food producers so I'd like to ask about not only women's role in the past, but how this everlasting knowledge poises women throughout the world to take the lead in wildlife conservation. The Food and Agricultural Organization estimates that globally around 1 billion people still rely on wild food for at least some portion of their diets. And this food is majority of the subsistence food resource is procured by women. So you're absolutely right that these contributions to global food supply are incredibly important, and yet they're nearly invisible because a lot of times with these wild foods, they're informal, they're sort of not counted as part of the larger agricultural economic system. So we don't, we don't recognize this labor and we don't recognize this knowledge. But the women who procure wild foods from these regions, they have really intimate knowledge of these ecologies. I mean, they spend every day, you know, out foraging, out fishing, out observing the changes in the landscape. Another thing is that as climate change reduces agricultural yields, it's predicted that wild foods are going to play an increasingly critical role in food security and nutrition for a lot of people. And so women are both a particularly vulnerable group to climate change, but also, which I think is really exciting, they're also at the forefront of many conservation, resiliency, and sustainability initiatives. And so the question is, how do we support that knowledge 
you know, preliminary studies have found that when we give women decision-making power over the harvest of wild ingredients, they choose to invest more time and resources into sustainable management than men. You know, so I think this is in some ways like the next frontier in kind of community conservation or conservation goals is really looking at, at this silenced hidden knowledge. You know, we have these sort of root assumptions that people tend to value nature to the degree that they can subtract themselves from it. So if you don't have to subsist on it any longer, then you suddenly can say like, nature's wonderful and I appreciate it. But if you're there every day, you might think of it as, as something of less value. But, and I think that ties into another root assumption that we have that, that human action is inherently degrading. But from the perspective of women who know these wild species intimately, who rely on them, who spend time with them every day, neither of these assumptions are true. You know, and, and I think they can embody a much more mutual and loving relationship with these wild creatures. You know, so I think for me, some something that's really exciting is kind of challenging our assumptions about the tragedy of the commons. It's usually told that sort of individuals will destroy and degrade communal resources motivated by their own selfish profits. But if you took a sort of larger view and you look at women's role in this, you kind of start to understand that, you know, this theory relies on a belief that economic decisions exist outside of the details of everyday life. So something that I really love talking about in this book are these sort of what I call like these quiet stories, these hidden stories, these stories that are so mundane that we don't think to recognize them. And women going out and gathering every day is one of those stories that you just, it doesn't make the news. It's not bright and flashy, but it's such an important aspect of global conservation going forward. And so for me, you know, the idea that humans are an idle part of keeping nature wild is a really old one. And I think we need to start remembering that, that we're capable of creating the conditions for abundance, for mutual thriving of all the diverse creatures that live on this earth. And that sort of inherent connection with nature that we've lost and we've devalued as we've devalued women and their role in producing food and their environmental knowledge. So you know, as we remember and celebrate the silence knowledge, I think we can not only discover sort of how to protect these places, but also recreate a relationship with our own wildness. those of us in the so-called global north who remain relatively trapped within the global food chain, we're being forced to pay attention to global food security and the fact that the global marketplace doesn't actually exist to feed people. Comparatively, you reference how amidst the Black Plague, people turned to abandoned fields and the peripheries of place to eat whatever grew. And so as the global food chain becomes more and more uncertain, and the absurdity becomes clearer and clearer, Perhaps more people will hanker for a similar opportunity, but I wonder, what does this appetite mean for the largely urbanized and suburbanized world? How can we live and eat within the caring capacity of what is around us, especially when urban areas can't provide enough wild foods? Yeah, I mean, for me, the idea of feasting wild is not necessarily about going out and eating something wild, right? There's really too many of us. There's not enough wild landscapes for that to be a viable option as you point out, a lot of people live in urban areas where wild plants are often contaminated from growing out of, you know, contaminated soils. So much of this book is trying to understand how wild food, how we can prevent wild foods from just being luxuries to an elite few, you know, and really, so, so it's really issues of social justice and environmental justice go hand in hand for me. And so it's a hard one, right? But I think for me, feasting wild is more of a mentality in terms of how we approach our food. So it's more, 
it's an improvisation in how we connect to our food and our diets and our communities and the nature that is all around us. For me, it's about a curiosity and a noticing and sort of as cheesy as it sounds, like a gratitude for every bite of food that we have. I think one thing this pandemic really has brought up has been people's unequal access to just food in general, much less wild food, you know? So people of a certain class are able to go out and buy a month's worth of groceries and other people don't know how they're going to pay for tomorrow's food. And so I think those really stark contrasts in food access are so important and such an important place to start when we're talking about all of these things in terms of nature. You know, so I've loved seeing sort of the expansion of time that people are appreciating during quarantine. And so people are starting to do things like fermentations and sourdough, making kitchen victory gardens, you know, regrowing scallions from the leftover roots, composting in a bin in their house, improvising food out of what's left in their pantries. So I think that level of kind of creativity and play around food is part of what I wanted to capture in Feasting Wild and part of what we've lost in a sort of industrialized food system. But yeah, it also means becoming more aware of what kind of edible weeds are growing in the backyard or the kind of edible invasive plants and animals that might be, you know, accessible. And just, as you said, kind of becoming more attuned to the wild nature that's all around us. So it's been great to see people like start to notice the trees outside their window that they never noticed before. So that's sort of on an individual level, but it's also on a larger political and cultural level. Like we have a lot of work to do to make our food system accessible, healthy for everybody. But there's a lot of stuff that I'm really excited about and different ways that we can begin to rewild our agricultural system. So whether that's soil regeneration that actually captures carbon, no-till agriculture, permaculture, heirloom seeds and seed saving of land-raised varietals, growing kelp and other things on a small scale, regenerative herding, biodynamic arboriculture, farming the forest. I mean, the list goes on. And you can hear I'm kind of getting excited about this because I think we need all of it. We need all of those things right now. Mushroom cultivation. I mean, remediation of polluted soils through growing certain plants. There's, it just goes on and on. So, you know, I think it's really, it's about our making our agricultural systems more closely mimic wild ecosystems and bringing that into a community level where we are concerned not just about our own sustenance, but about the sustenance for everyone around us. I think wild food is not uniform. It is chaos in embodied form. Mm. Oh, I love that. Well, there was another quote that I wanted to read that you wrote saying, in losing wild foods from our diets, from the landscape, we lose something unnameable. The silences are so loud, they have become their own sound. We face a spiritual crisis, an existential loneliness greater than any heartbreak. To be without the ecstasy of the wild is to face a bland future. Of course, we can't all go back to eating wild foods. There are too many of us and not enough wild places left. We would need many earths to satisfy our hunger. Yet for many people, wild foods remain a necessity. So in closing, I'm wondering, what does the future of wild foods look like to you? Yeah, well, I sort of jumped the gun on that question when I went on my ramble about all these different ways that we can rewild our agricultural system. But I think on a more sort of spiritual or philosophical level, I think remembering that eating is an act of survival and feeling that on a really deep level is so important. And eating is an act of love. And it's so easy to forget that with having to, you know, three meals a day and going about our busy lives. But in so many ways, the wild is just inherently unknowable. And so how do you have a relationship with something that is inherently undefinable? And yet, you know, just as our relationships to people, the wild will always be a stranger on some level. So how do we celebrate that quality of the unknowable, of the hidden, of the silent, of the lost? For me, rewilding doesn't necessarily require you know, removing ourselves from the capitalist grid, but I think it requires severing ourselves from a grid mentality. So it's about opening ourselves to that infinite possibility of coincidence, of coexistence. You know, to be alienated from wild nature is to be alienated from ourselves. And as we have domesticated the planet, we unintentionally domesticated ourselves. So really feasting wild, the feasting wild mentality is about rediscovering that wild nature within ourselves. 
And it's up to us to imagine how the world begins again. Mm, That's beautiful. Well, Gina, I really appreciate the depth in which you talk about wild foods because like we've discussed in this conversation with this dominant culture that just fetishizes and commodifies everything and with the popularity of wild foods growing, they're really in danger in so many ways, whether it's because of popularity for privileged folks who are actually separated from wild foods or even people who really rely on wild foods and land use change and destruction and how that implicates just the very complex relationships that we have with these plants and animals. And I just appreciate the integrity that you have when writing and speaking about this topic and all the ways in which you hold the many, many threads that come into this. So thank you so much for your time. And, you know, if you do have any other last stories to tell us or any last things that you feel like haven't been said, I would love to keep talking about this. Otherwise, I know we've had such a good conversation. So it's totally up to you. Yeah, totally. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to have these nuanced conversations because we're all sort of addicted to this fast-paced news cycle. And and I think taking the time to think about topics on a deeper level is so vital and necessary. And in some ways, more and more necessary as you know, we just get to a point where we're just reading headlines. You know, this book took me six years to write, and it went through many different iterations and forms to try and weave all these different strands together. Because I really wanted to paint a larger picture, you know, that tapestry, that web of relations, and and really try and understand how, you know, what is our role in this ecology? What is our, I don't like to think of myself, much less my fellow humans, as just horrible, destructive beasts. And that's certainly a side to our natures and our existence, but it's not all of it. But I think this for me was also, it was a book of heartbreak. It was a book of acknowledging sort of the grief the low-level grief that I feel all the time about environmental destruction that's happening everywhere. Humans are not that great at holding paradox and contradiction in our minds, but I think so much of this book was about that as well. Like, how do we hold these different paradoxes and contradictions that our desire for wild food is both our birthright and brilliant and and gorgeous and also destructive and painful um, at the same time. So I, yeah, I just appreciate you and the work that you're doing and I'm excited to continue having these conversations. You know, I I think it's such a strange moment in the world. And I think this pause has been necessary for us to, again, shine a light on some of these dark, dark aspects of the world and, and start, you know, using our imaginations for building the future that we really want to see, trying things differently. We're such creative, adaptive species that, you know, we've pretty much filled every niche, habitable or not around the world. I'm confident that we can figure out a way to get ourselves out of this mess. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm audio producer Andrew Storrs. The music you heard today was from Eliza Edens and Jessica Moore. I'd like to thank our host and founder, Ayana Young, as well as the rest of our podcast production team, Francesca Glassbell, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger, 